In March of 2008, father of five, soon to be six, Michael Womack would vanish without a trace from Alton, Illinois, only for his truck to be found almost 30 miles away, clean and wiped of any fingerprints. Then, in July of 2011, father of two, Jared Hanna, would leave his home in Jerseyville, Illinois. After failing to pick up his daughters, Jared's pickup truck will be found almost 70 miles away, abandoned and out of gas. Potential sightings of Jared before the truck was found would surface, but no answers would come. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 32, The Disappearances of Michael Womack and Jared Hanna. Hey you, yeah you, the one hearing us right now. Welcome to Cryptic Soup. I'm Thena. And I'm Kylie. We wanted to say hey and tell you about our podcast. It's a podcast we both host where we talk crimes, cryptids, murders, and a lot of wild stuff in between. You can find Mothman, Jeffrey Dahmer, SeaWorld, Spectrophilia, Casey Anthony, or even Skinwalker Ranch to be just a few of the crazy topics we cover. We even do some fun urban legends to make you feel like a kid at the campfire again. We're just two best friends hanging out, diving into all the things that your coworkers think you're a weirdo for wanting to talk about. We have a new episode every Tuesday at 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we're always open for case suggestions. Our Instagram is at CrypticSuitPod, where our DMs are always open, so slide on in. We always want to hear your opinions about any cases and episodes we cover. You can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most podcasting platforms. At Cryptic Soup Pod, the menu is always overflowing with crazy topics you'll want to hear about. So join the conversation today and come hang out with us. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with delayed episodes. Social media and contact info will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes and bonus episodes, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash midwestmysteryfiles. I would also like to take this moment to thank my amazing patrons, Laura, Todd, Teresa, and Sherry. Today's episode is a little different. I'm doing a bit of a throwback to how I did, I believe, episode 5, where I have two cases to talk about due to a lack of information on either. These cases aren't related in any way, other than proximity, and the coincidence that the vehicles were found in both instances. These are just cases that I really wanted to cover, as neither one has received much coverage, but I was unable to find much information on either case, so I opted to just do them as one, since I had already dedicated myself to both cases. I was able to find a bit more info on one case as I was writing the episode, But overall, these are little-known cases that deserve the same coverage as any other case. So, without further ado, on to today's episode. Not much information is publicly available on Michael Anthony Womack. From what I've been able to put together, he was born May 18, 1982, and had a few siblings, including his sister, 
April Pittman, who has acted as the primary spokesperson in his case. In March of 2008, Michael was the father of five girls, with an unborn son on the way. Michael lived in Alton, Illinois, and worked at the Walmart in nearby Wood River. April has described her brother Michael to the press as a laid-back, one-of-a-kind person who always picked up the phone when you needed him. She would explain that Michael looked after her son. When he didn't have a father in his life, Michael was the one who stepped in and became a role model for her son. Monday, March 31st, 2008, was an average spring day with highs in the 60s and some cloud coverage. Michael was set to work shifts at Walmart throughout the week and was due in traffic court in the coming days. According to reports, Michael was seen speaking to a family member between 1.30 and 2 o'clock p.m. Reportedly, Michael left by himself in his pickup truck, a dark green 2004 Ford F-150. The exact timeline is unclear, but over the next several days, Michael would not be seen by friends or family, nor would he show up to his job nor his date in traffic court. Eventually, Michael would be reported missing, and three weeks after his disappearance, the first sign of Michael would be found, although it would only cause more mystery and confusion. On Saturday, April 19th, 2008, Michael's green 2004 Ford F-150 would be discovered in a convenience store parking lot in Cahoka, Illinois, 28 miles south of where Michael was last seen. Reportedly, the truck was wiped clean of any fingerprints, and the keys were locked inside of the vehicle. Outside of the vehicle being found, I do want to add quickly that according to the Charlie Project, Michael's last cell phone pinged off a tower in Godfrey, 10 miles to the north of Alton. I assume this was made the day of his disappearance, but that's never been specified. It is further stated that he would have had to have been within 20 miles of the tower for it to pick up his call. Both Alton and Wood River to the south of Alton would have been within that range. Wood River is where the Walmart Michael worked at is located. This would further baffle family and investigators, as Michael had no reason to go to Cahoka, and he never left the town without telling someone. He was also working steadily and was gearing up for the birth of his son. His sister April would tell the Telegraph in October of 2008, quote, He's not the type of person who just left. He was going to work every day. He never missed work. He always wanted his boy, so he was close to my sons, and he wouldn't have missed their birthdays. Unfortunately, Michael would miss their birthdays, as well as his own 26th birthday on May 18th. And on May 23rd, he would miss the birth of his sixth child and only son, Michael Jr., all of this was out of character for Michael, and the mystery of his disappearance would only persist. He wasn't someone who would just leave everyone behind, and his family has stressed he was close with all of them, especially his mother. And from what anyone could tell, he didn't have any enemies, with April telling the Alton Telegraph in October of 2008, quote, Everybody liked Michael. I don't know of anyone he had a problem with or who had it out for him. He talked to everyone. He was always joking around. The family would hand out flyers, raise money for a reward, and hold yearly candlelight vigils or balloon releases. 
but all efforts would do little to bring in any information or potential leads in Michael's disappearance. In 2014, a grisly discovery would be made that investigators and family might have had the slight chance of having some answers in Michael's disappearance. On August 5th, 2014, a body was discovered inside a car parked under a freestanding carport located on the 2700 block of Powhatan Street in Alton. The car was reportedly parked behind another car, and neighbors reported that the car had been parked there for six years, the same amount of time that Michael had been missing. According to Fox 2 Now, an unnamed aunt of Michael would tell reporters that if nothing else, if the body was identified as Michael, it would at least give the family closure because, quote, it's been so long and hard. The body would be sent off for testing, but at the time, investigators would note that it may take quite some time for answers. In 2015, April Pittman would express doubt that the body was that of her brother. She would tell the Telegraph on March 30th, quote, A lot of people thought the body was his. The police never cleared him, never said it wasn't him, but they are collecting DNA for Michael. I went down there and talked to them. I never felt like it was him. If it was my brother, I would have felt it. She would also note that if the body was identified as Michael, her hopes would still remain somewhat dashed, as there would still be questions as to what happened to him and who killed him, or if he was murdered at all. She would continue on to state, quote, I want it all at once. The body would eventually be identified as a Honduran national named Jose Randolfo Pagoda, a man named Odilon Villagran Gudino has been arrested for his murder. Since that time, there has been no more news or updates on Michael's case. Although the case has stayed in the news and the public eye due to the nonstop efforts of Michael's family. Just this year, on April 1st, Michael's family did a balloon release in Michael's honor, something they do yearly. April Pittman remains hopeful and prayerful but would tell the Telegraph in March that staying positive wasn't always easy, saying, quote, As the years go by, it makes me feel like I may not see him again. At this point, I would love to see my brother, but I just want information to figure out what happened, where he could possibly be, if he's dead or alive. It's been 15 years since 25-year-old Michael Womack disappeared without a trace only for his vehicle to be found a few weeks later, abandoned and wiped clean of fingerprints. I say this a lot, but this time I'm really not delving much into theories, as there's absolutely nothing to go on, and not much has been said by family or investigators as to what they believe happened. All I can really say is that it's certainly suspicious that a man who had been there for all five of his children, as well as his nephews, and was excited for his boy to be born in the near future, would just up and leave. Only for his truck, completely wiped clean, to be found almost 30 miles away. Obviously, until answers are found, we can't 100% rule out the idea of him leaving on his own accord. But everything here screams foul play, at least to me. Although to what length and why, I'm not going to speculate. All that matters is that a son, brother, uncle, 
nephew, and most importantly, a father, went away one day and never came back. And in that time, a family has been left wondering what happened, with absolutely nothing in the way of answers. Six children have had to grow up without a dad. Ashlyn Womack would tell The Telegraph in March of 2023, quote, I remember you every day, but missing you is a heartache that never goes away until we see each other again. You will forever be my sunshine each and every day. Tori Womack would state, quote, Some days I'm lost and some days I'm angry, but every day I pray for answers and closure. My dad will always be remembered and live through me forever. Michael Womack Jr. Quote, What hurts the most is that I never got to run up to my dad and hear, I love you, son, or I'm proud of you. But I know he does. Michelle Womack. Quote, I love and miss my dad. I really wish I knew what happened. Micaiah Womack. Quote, we all hurt, and we all feel some type of way. I will never give up, and I'll never stop searching for answers. Jasmine Womack, quote, I miss you in ways that not even words can understand. Dad, I wish you were here, but I know you'll be back. When last seen on March 31st, 2008, Michael Womack was described as a 25-year-old black male standing 5 foot 7 and weighing 165 to 174 pounds. Michael has black hair, brown eyes. He has a tattoo of praying hands on his forearm, a birthmark below his right eye, and a scar above his left eye. His hair was braided at the time of his disappearance. He has a catheter opening on the left side of his chest due to past treatment for lymphoma. He was last seen in Alton, Illinois, wearing a blue denim Rokaware pants and jacket set, a brown shirt, brown boots, and a brown baseball cap. If alive today, he would be 41 years old. If you have any information on the disappearance of Michael Womack, please contact the Alton Police Department at 618-463-3505. If you're looking for any additional information, the Alton Telegraph, as well as the Riverbender, offered the most amount of information. You can also join the group, Mike Womack, We Miss You, on Facebook. What do you get when you mix someone who loves true crime and horror movies with someone who's afraid of their own shadow? Someone like you? Yeah. I'm glad you asked. You get the perfect podcast. We're Carmen and Joanna of Live, Laugh, Murder podcast. We're not your typical true crime show. Here at Live, Laugh, Murder, we tell stories that might be true crime or they might be the plot of a horror film. Can you tell the difference? Don't worry, though, because all is revealed by the end. We are true crime sometimes. So check us out. We release bi-weekly on Saturdays. And remember to live, laugh, but never what, Joanna? Murder. Never murder. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Much like Michael, not much information is available about Jared Hanna's early life. What we do know is that at the beginning of July 2011, Jared was 28 years old, living in Jerseyville, Illinois. He was divorced with two young girls, ages 3 and 6 at the time, with whom he had custodial guardianship. 
Jared worked for Oros and Bush Application Technologies, a company that contracts with municipalities for water plant lime sludge removal, so he did spend a bit of time on the road. During that time, Jared's sister, Hannah, would watch the girls for Jared. He's been described as goofy, loyal, loving, and quite the jokester. Saturday, July 2nd, 2011, was a hot one, with highs jumping up into the 90s. But Jared found himself with some free time, as his girls were with their mother for the weekend in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was going to take advantage of it. His overall plans for the day were unknown, but it's known he took bait and fishing gear with them, so it's easy to assume that he had some plans to at least fish. It's known that Jared left his home that day at around 11.30 a.m. No one saw Jared for the next couple of days, which most likely wasn't too much of a red flag for anyone. That would change, however, on the evening of July 4th, when Jared's ex-wife would contact Jared's sister, Heather Hannah, to ask if she had seen Jared. She informed Heather that Jared was supposed to pick the girls up sometime during the evening on July 3rd, but had never arrived. Concern would grow on July 5th, when Jared's mother, Pat New, would receive a phone call from the Clinton County Sheriff's Office that the vehicle Jared had been driving, which was registered to Pat, a white 1990 GMC Sierra, was found abandoned and out of gas on Joliffe Bridge Road in rural Centralia, Illinois, about 70 miles southeast of Jerseyville, where Jared resided. A deputy had first seen the vehicle parked on the evening of the 4th, and then called it in when he saw it was still there the next morning. At this point, the family would formally report Jared missing, and with authorities in Jersey and Clinton County both looking into the disappearance, it wouldn't take long for a tentative timeline of events to be formed. After leaving his home on July 2nd at 11.30 a.m., Jared would be seen purchasing a soda at an Amico gas station at 11.45 via surveillance footage. His cell phone then pinged off a cell phone tower in East Alton at 12.30. East Alton is 22 miles south of Jerseyville and would be right on a likely route Jared would take if headed to the Centralia area. Reports state that there was some further cell phone activity in the Centralia area that evening, including Jared calling his ex-wife at approximately 9.30 to check on his daughters, but never anything after that. The evening of July 2nd, there were two reports of Jared being seen in Norb's Tavern and the Big Muddy Pub in Alton, although these sightings have been long unconfirmed. Next, a motorist would report seeing Jared walking down a Clinton County road not far from where his truck was found. The last sighting would come the next morning, July 3rd, when between 8.30 and 8.40 a.m., Jared would knock on the door of a residence not far from his vehicle. According to the resident, they provided Jared with a drink of water and directions to the nearest town. He was last seen walking east towards Centralia. These circumstances would further confuse and worry Jared's family. While he may have been fishing due to his fishing gear being found in the vehicle, no one at the time was entirely sure why he would have gone to that area in particular. Fear began to rise that something may have happened to him. His family was adamant that he would not leave his daughters on a whim, with Heather Hannah telling the Alton Telegraph, quote, 
He wouldn't just leave. He was supposed to be going back to work. And instead, he's missing. The family would waste a little time going to work, making attempts to find Jared. They would hand out flyers, organize searches, and create a still-active Facebook group called Help Find Jared Hanna, which helped to also bring in tips. Eventually, searches would slow down with no results, but would be reignited momentarily in October of 2011. On October 10th, a black shoulder or duffel bag belonging to Jared was found on the banks of Crooked Creek, about a mile and a half away from where his truck had been found on Joliffe Bridge Road. The bag contained Jared's wallet, cell phone, video camera, tools, and keys. Some of his clothing and a pair of shoes were found nearby. Family members would positively identify the items as belonging to Jared. The creek and surrounding area would be searched, but no further clues would be uncovered. On the one-year anniversary of Jared's disappearance, the family would hold a candlelight vigil in memory of Jared. With no sign of Jared, the family would still hold firm to their belief that something had happened to him, and he did not just leave on his own accord. Jared's mother, Pat New, would tell the Alton Telegraph in July of 2012, quote, It's hard. We miss him, and his girls miss him. He wouldn't just leave it, no matter how tough it was. He loved his girls more than anything. In the time since the duffel bag was found, there has been little in the way of coverage other than a few articles here and there. However, in the midst of writing this portion of the episode, I did stumble across a two-part episode from the podcast Missing from July of 2021, that features an interview with Heather Hanna. I highly encourage you to listen to the entire episodes for yourself. I do, however, want to speak on some things that Heather brings up that have never been reported elsewhere. Heather notes that they're actually certain Jared had set out to fish as he took bait and fishing supplies with them. However, the bait was not in the vehicle when it was found. I do want to note it would appear that Jared and Hannah lived together, so she was able to take stock of what Jared owned and what he might have taken with him, something that will come up again shortly. It also was apparently found out by Heather that his co-workers had told him about some fishing spots in that area, and that's why he may have been down that way. It was reported that Jared was possibly seen in two Alton area bars that he was known to frequent the night of July 2nd. According to Heather, one of the bartenders who knew Jared very well saw Jared that night. Heather stated that the bartender knew she didn't work on the night of the 1st, but did on the 2nd, so she was positive it had to be that night that she saw him. The bartender would explain that she served him a beer, had to turn around to attend to someone else, and then didn't see Jared the rest of the night. Which bar the bartender worked at was never specified. Heather would note that the family saw camera footage from both bars, but were never able to spot him on camera. In terms of Jared's truck, Hannah would state the truck was found pulled off the road into a small drive area and was parked on an incline, clarifying that if Jared had ran out of gas, he would not have been able to push the truck there himself to get it off the road. She would state that the truck appeared ransacked. She would also note that a guitar and amplifier were missing from the house. She surmised that if it wasn't at the house, it would only make sense that Jared had taken them, 
they were also not present in the vehicle, pointing to the possibility they could have been stolen. It's been long believed that Jared ran out of gas. Heather would note, however, that when they added gas to the tank, the vehicle started right up. She would explain that she had spoken to mechanics who informed her that with a vehicle of that age, if it had been drained completely of gas, it would not start up right away. The gas pedal would need to be primed several times to get the fuel back into the fuel system. If, however, the gas was siphoned out, there would still be enough residual gas that it would start easily without being primed. Heather would express that she believed the vehicle was possibly placed in the spot and the gas siphoned to make it appear that Jared had run out of gas. Clinton County, where the truck was found, and who has primary jurisdiction, declined to process the truck. However, Jersey County would process and discover at least one fingerprint that did not belong to Jared. Although Heather was unsure where on the vehicle it was found. When it comes to the black duffel bag of Jared's that was found, Jared's phone was missing the SIM card and the digital video camera he had packed was missing his memory card. Heather would also note that she believed the clothes found in the bag was possibly the clothes he was wearing when he left the house. She would also note that there was one shirt present that didn't belong to Jared, stating that it was a shirt from a pub crawl or poker run, something that Jared would not have owned. Heather also estimated that Jared would most likely have around $300 in cash on him, as that's mainly what he carried and he didn't have a bank card. This money was never found in the bag or truck. As far as the two sightings in Clinton County, it was said that the man seen walking on the road around midnight on July 2nd was wearing a white A-shirt, which again was something that Jared would not have owned. As far as the man who showed up at a residence on the morning of July 3rd, Heather noted it was strange that if it was Jared that he would need to be asking for directions, as he had worked in the area and knew it quite well. It was also noted in the missing podcast that the area of Joliffe Road is no stranger to crime or even missing persons cases, as there have been a handful of cases in the area, and the area is said to be a hangout for hard drug users. I should also note that while I found varying crime statistics for nearby Centralia, its crime rate does sit somewhere around 2.5 times higher than the national average. Last thing of note is that according to Jared's ex-wife, when he called to check on his daughters, she could hear fireworks in the background, but she did not know where he was calling from. According to Heather, fireworks could have been happening anywhere from Centralia to Alton or even across the Mississippi in St. Louis. With all these revelations, it adds more mystery and concern to an already baffling case. In 15 years, there's been little in the way of answers, with plenty of questions. When I initially began writing this, before finding Heather's interview, I really didn't have much in the way of theories. If I'm being honest, my concrete speculation was that this sounded like a case of someone running out of gas, heading out on foot, and then possibly succumbing to the elements. According to weather records via Weather Underground, temps were well into the 90s that day with high humidity. I never really thought it outside the realm of possibility that Jared could have cut through a field or wooded area and maybe succumb there. However, now I think it is worth looking a bit more at other avenues. There is still the possibility that the first theory holds some water, 
there's always the chance that Jared wanted to get some early morning fishing in, and while he was fishing, the vehicle was ransacked and the gas siphoned. He then had to start walking, which is when he could have stumbled upon the residents to ask for directions. Heather stated that he knew the area well, but there could have been a chance in the heat that he could have got turned around and needed reassurance that he was on the right path. The biggest thing with this is that Heather would note that the location where the truck was found was not near any of the potential fishing areas Jared had been told about. And the pond that was nearby was shallow and not one that would have been good for fishing, if it even had any fish in it at all. Where things get weird is the discovery of the black duffel bag and the items inside. The clothes Jared was wearing when he left the house, being with the bag, isn't particularly a red flag to me. He could have easily had a change of clothes and switched them out. It's more the location and everything else with the bag that concerns me. While I imagine if Jared left on foot, he would take his bag with him, I find it doubtful he would put the phone in his bag rather than carry it on his person. The removal of the cards from the camera and the phone are also strange, primarily the phone. From what I've been able to learn online, a SIM card and a flip phone like Jared had would hold very little information to track where Jared or the phone could have been. However, if he did run afoul of someone who was not very tech-savvy, the culprit could think removing the SIM card would give them some sort of advantage of not being found. I really have no guess on the camera card, though. On the topic of the bag, it was found near a creek. So, some have speculated that Jared fell in the creek and drowned. Heather would note, however, that he was a good swimmer, and it was unlikely this would be the case. My own personal note on this, I'm not entirely sure the depth and width of Crooked Creek. However, in my experience, creeks are not exactly something where the water levels get high enough for someone to drown in, at least a full-grown adult. Not to say they can't get high, but that tends to happen more during something like flash flooding. Sure, there could be a circumstance where he had lost complete consciousness and fell in and drowned, but again, I find it unlikely. This leads us into the theory of foul play. There's a myriad of speculation and theories we could go down on this road, and I don't want to get too wild with them. I just want to focus on one. And again, this is some heavy speculation on my part. But I know among those close to him... Robbery is a potential motive, so I'm going to roll with it. We know that Jared was potentially seen in two Alton bars on the evening of July 2nd, with one bartender who knew him well feeling positive that she saw him. We also know he was potentially somewhere near fireworks, based off the word of his ex-wife and what she thought she heard. What if Jared Hanna did go out that day, did some fishing, and then decided to stop for a beer in Alton, with fireworks happening shortly afterward. Seems likely enough. Then one of two things could have possibly happened. Either he unintentionally ran afoul of someone, or he was accosted during a robbery and things went way south, with either circumstance having a deadly ending. The culprit or culprits then took Jared's truck, siphoned it as the family speculates, searched the truck for anything of value, and then stashed Jared's duffel bag near the creek. The bag was reportedly found under a deer stand. They could have possibly known it was going to be found and there was a chance authorities would just think he had drowned. The man knocking on the resident's door the morning was just more of coincidence and was not in fact Jared. 
This only leaves the question of where Jared's remains would be, but aside the, from the fact that this whole area was near the Mississippi River, I don't want to just start throwing any further ideas around. This whole thing, as I always stress with my theories, is speculative, but when you start connecting the dots, it doesn't seem completely unlikely. But until Jared is found, or someone comes forward, we will never know for sure. What is known is that a dedicated father, son, and brother went out one day and has yet to come home. In the 12 years since his disappearance, his two young girls have had to grow up without a father, and Pat knew Jared's mother has passed, never getting answers to what happened to her son. Jared's case, much like Michael Womack's, has received very little coverage over the years. Family has fought hard to keep his name in the news and to keep hope alive. When asked by Missing what people could do to help, Heather simply stated the biggest help would be to spread awareness. This is where you, the listeners, come in. Myself, or even the guys at Missing, can talk into a microphone and put episodes out. But I highly encourage everyone who listens to share this episode. Share the episodes from Missing. Share any resources you may look into. Even join the Facebook groups. Not just for Jared's sake, but also for Michael's. People and awareness can be some of the biggest helpers to bring someone home. Or at the very least, bring families closure. When last seen in 2011, Jared Hanna was described as a white male, 5'7", 195 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. His hair was a buzz cut at the time. He also has a scar on the back of his head and on his right foot. He was last seen wearing a t-shirt, jean shorts, and tennis shoes. His last confirmed sighting was July 2nd at 11.45 a.m. at the Amico convenience store in Jerseyville. He may have also been in Norb's Tavern and the Big Muddy Pub in Alton that evening. It may have been at fireworks in nearby areas as well. Jared was 28 years old at the time of his disappearance, and if alive today, he would be 40 or 41 years old. If you have any information on the disappearance of Jared Hanna, please contact the Clinton County Sheriff's Office at 618-594-4555, the Jersey County Sheriff's Office at 618-498-6881, Two Rivers Crime Stoppers at 1-800-300-2590, or Clinton County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-918-8911. If you're looking for any further information, the Alton Telegraph and the Riverbender has articles on the case. I would also highly recommend listening to episodes 248 and 249 of Missing, which does feature an interview with Heather Hanna. You can also join Help Find Jared Hanna on Facebook. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram, at Midwest Mystery Files, X at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relative to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches, and more importantly, 
helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.